0: What if you found out you were a missing link in the mystery surrounding a national tragedy? What if, unbeknownst to you, your very existence was possible evidence of a massive conspiracy? Could a casual, everyday decision as simple as what to wear spark decades of questions and theories? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is not here for your conspiracy theories. Until I hear them and I'm like, wait, tell me more. Today, a mysterious figure who has sparked decades of debate and controversy. A person who may not even be aware they're the subject of such heated debate. The babushka lady. Just an innocent bystander or a part of the biggest cover-up in governmental history? Tighten up your babushkas. We're going to Dallas. On November 22, 1963, the course of our country's history was forever altered when President John F. Kennedy was shot. The powers that were quickly found the culprit, Lee Harvey Oswald, a seemingly random so-and-so with a somewhat dubious past. But before he could be brought to trial to explain why he assassinated the president, he himself was murdered while on a perp walk by mobster Jack Ruby. Ruby was apparently so distraught over the assassination that he had to take revenge, which is particularly strange because at his trial, Ruby said that, quote, perhaps he didn't vote for Kennedy or vote at all. And he himself claimed to be confused as to why he was upset enough over the assassination to murder Oswald. This bizarre admission and his ties to the mob would lead to countless conspiracies about Ruby's true motives. And so, with no chance to get any real answers out of Oswald, the country was left to wonder how and why their president was killed. And of course, when answers are few, theories are many. Over the years, conspiracy theories have cropped up like so many Starbucks locations, fueled by big Oscar-winning films, books, documentaries, and of course, our favorite, internet message boards. But. This episode is not about the various conspiracy theories surrounding the murder of JFK. Not directly, anyway. Today, we're going to zoom in on the scene of the crime, specifically on one onlooker in the crowd that watched the president's motorcade go by that November afternoon in Dallas, Texas. The so-called babushka lady. Who was she? Where did she go? And where did the footage she took that day disappear to? Immediately following the assassination, as JFK was sped to a local hospital, police in the area began questioning witnesses. Anyone who had taken photos or footage of the event was asked to hand over their pictures or film as evidence. Over and over in pictures and the small handful of film footage taken at the event, one figure appeared. A person in a trench coat with a scarf over their head tied at the neck. The person could be seen in the images taking photos or video of their own. Police were keen to get their hands on the footage this person got. They seemed to have had a great angle on the president. They were, after all, mere feet from the street the motorcade passed on, and their photos or film might shed some light on what happened. But no one could identify them. Police labeled the person the Babushka Lady because of the scarf on their head. They just as easily could have named them the Trenchcoat Person, but Babushka Lady it was, and they decided the Babushka Lady was a lady, so... We'll go with that. These days, it takes one person uploading a video of a Karen being Karen-y for said Karen to be identified, publicly shamed, and possibly fired, only later to be quietly rehired and sue for wrongful termination or whatever. But in 1963, it was much harder to identify people in grainy photos and footage. So, who was this mysterious person lurking underneath the trench coat and headscarf? Police immediately put out an all-points bulletin requesting information on this stranger. Oddly, though, they don't seem to have done any more than that. Like why they didn't pass out flyers around town or put something in the newspaper requesting information from the public, like a can-you-identify-this-person type of thing. I don't know. Police wanted more than just her photos or footage, though. They were particularly interested in the babushka lady because something about her was suspicious. For starters, they thought, the weather was hot and sunny. Why would anyone be wearing a trench coat and headscarf on such a glorious day? And, like, sure, a trench coat is an odd choice, but it had been raining earlier that morning. One would think she might have at least opened the coat, though, given the temperature around the time the motorcade passed through the plaza was around 67 degrees. But who knows? Maybe she ran cold. Maybe she spilled tomato soup on her dress at lunch and didn't want to be embarrassed in case the president looked at her. Maybe she was a flasher on her way to her favorite flashing spot when she just happened to cross the motorcade. We don't know. As for the headscarf, I mean... That was a fairly ubiquitous accessory in the 60s. It's not that unusual. The wind was blowing. Maybe she just had her hair set the night before and was trying to maintain her curls. Maybe her grays were coming in, gasp. Maybe she found that headscarf to be the exact right material to keep her at exactly the temperature she found most comfortable. Regardless of the myriad reasons she may have been dressed that way, police found her outfit worth noting. Also odd, according to police, was her reaction to the horrible violence she was witnessing. If you haven't ever seen the footage of the second bullet hitting Kennedy's head, it's surprisingly gruesome. Or maybe I was just surprised because I had never really seen it in slow motion or in color or zoomed in before. Not to be too gore happy, but the side of his head was blown apart. And while I knew that Jacqueline Kennedy, his wife, infamously crawled over the back of the car to pick up the pieces of her husband's skull, I still wasn't really hip to how messy the whole thing was. Despite the awfulness on display in front of her, though, and while others around her either fell to the ground for cover or ran, the babushka lady stood fast, apparently continuing to document the immediate aftermath. Police found this particularly strange. What kind of person seemingly has little to no reaction when witnessing a murder of anyone, let alone the leader of the free world? But people are infinitely complex, and our reactions are not always predictable. Picking up pieces of your husband's skull and brain off the back of the car in which he's just been shot? Personally, I find that to be an incredibly strange reaction. I'm not judging Mrs. Kennedy. She was just reacting. Who knows what made her do that? Her body probably moved before her brain even registered what was happening. Maybe she thought they'd be able to put it back on. Later, in surgery, she quietly handed over the pieces of her husband's head she had been carrying since that moment. Denial is a crazy thing. Maybe the babushka lady was also having an automatic reaction. Maybe her response to danger was to freeze. While others fled or jumped in to try to help, maybe the babushka lady just kept filming, as some people claim she did, because everything else had just sort of shut down. Maybe she was deaf and didn't react because she didn't even hear the gunshots. For me, personally, when I'm confronted with the threat of danger, I get very dizzy and then unbelievably exhausted. If you've listened to any earlier episodes of this podcast, you know that tired is my baseline. So imagine what happens to me when I'm truly threatened or I experience real trauma. You've heard of fight, flight, or freeze. For me, it's a big-time freeze in the form of hardcore napping. It's probably why I slept for about 20 years after my mother died. The thing is, though, if you watch the clips of Kennedy's assassination, you'll see all kinds of different responses from bystanders in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. The babushka lady is not the only one who doesn't move. Indeed, the people shooting the footage in which she appears also clearly didn't move and kept filming. Perhaps they had the wherewithal to somehow know instantly that what they were filming was of epic historical importance, so they put their emotions aside and kept getting footage. Also, it may not have been obvious to the witnesses what they were witnessing as it happened. Everything happened so quickly. They might not even have had time to process what they were filming until later. And then there was the babushka ladies. Wide stance. I could go off on a tangent about a certain former Republican senator from Minneapolis and his wide stance defense. I wasn't looking for a blowy in the men's room. I just do splits while I'm peeing. But I'm better than that. I won't stoop that low. Or rather, stand that wide. Moving on. Personally, I don't think the babushka lady stance is anything to write home about. Maybe she was a second-wave feminist who was just practicing taking up her space. Maybe she had weird balance issues. Maybe the babushka lady had such a big penis, she couldn't put her legs together. If I learned anything from growing up taking the New York City subway, it's that most men have penises so big that they have no choice but to spread their legs. Otherwise, their poor penises and bollies will be squished. They are very tender. And anyway, her stance was not all that wide. According to the official record, police never identified the babushka lady, but word got out about the mysterious and elusive witness. And where there was little to no information, as usual, conspiracy theories and suppositions began to seep in. Without a flesh-and-blood person to point to as the so-called babushka lady, people began to whisper about spies and collusion and cutting-edge secret weapons technology, because of course they did. The babushka lady, some people claimed, was a Russian spy. Because of the babushka, I guess? Seems a bit too obvious to me. Like, wouldn't a Russian spy choose clothing that didn't indicate they were from Russia? That would be like an American spy in Russia wearing a backward baseball cap and sandals with socks on. Like, you might as well be carrying a flag, you know? Some people believe the camera she was holding was a super advanced spy gun that only looked like a camera. But if you Google camera gun and see what's available today, 60 years later, it's improbable that even the most advanced spy technology could produce a gun that looked enough like a camera for someone to brandish it mere feet from a presidential motorcade. Steve Hagar, a Kennedy researcher slash conspiracy theorist, believes that the babushka lady was working for James Jesus Angleton, the chief of counterintelligence at the CIA. I'm not going to pretend that I understand the incredibly complex machinations of intelligence and counterintelligence, but from what I can piece together, Hagar believes Angleton had intel on andor connections with Lee Harvey Oswald, the man largely believed to be JFK's assassin, through his counterintelligence work. Hagar wrote... The overdressed and remarkably calm Babushka lady stands out as one of the most mysterious figures in JFK's assassination. She was methodically panning the kill zone before the shooting started and continued to document as events unfolded. I have to wonder if she was James Angleton's eyes and ears on the ground in Dallas that day. So well positioned was she to capture the murder. Whatever film she shot has never seen the light of day, although it likely remains deep in some repository at the House of Langley. Calling the motorcade pathway a kill zone is a little leading. He could have easily called it the street or the onlookers. And anyone who has ever read the smallest bit about the possible assassination as inside job theory knows that the whole thing is impossibly complex and twisty. But if Angleton was in on the assassination, why would he have allowed his person on the ground to take any footage at all? On the other hand, if Angleton was paranoid that there was a secret government plot and cover-up around JFK's assassination, wouldn't he want the babushka lady's footage to be made public? Like, maybe not in his official position as chief of counterintelligence, but maybe resign and release the proof you have of the massive governmental cover-up? And anyway, Hagar suggesting Angleton had some kind of involvement with Lee Harvey Oswald is a pretty thin argument. The entire CIA knew who Lee Harvey Oswald was and had been watching him for months. Also, the CIA would have had a lot of eyes and ears on the ground. Unless you believe Donald Sutherland in Oliver Stone's 1993 biopic JFK starring everyone alive in Hollywood. Sutherland plays a former black ops guy who tells Kevin Costner that the CIA was purposefully not there that day because it was all an inside job. It's impossible to talk about anything relating to JFK's assassination without wading a little bit into the weeds of governmental conspiracy, but we're getting dangerously close to getting stuck out here, so let's leave this particular theory and wade back to shore. Another theory posited by Quora user Dale Sternitsky, former computer department manager at Staples, is... The babushka lady was Lillian Zabruder, the wife of Abraham Zabruder. We can now prove this with photographic evidence from the many films and photographs that were taken on the day JFK was assassinated. The babushka lady was the signal for the two gunmen located in the number three shelter area pergola located behind Abraham Zabruder to begin firing at President Kennedy and Governor John Connolly. She opened up her big fur coat, which exposed a kind of bright reflective glass, and then the men started to fire. You can see it right on the film. It's uh, rather chilling and haunting to see this happening. If you're like me and never intentionally watched and scrutinized the photos and film footage of the assassination before, first of all, don't go doing it now. I mistakenly watched The Hanging of Saddam Hussein just after that film was released, and I truly regret it no matter how you feel personally about someone watching them actively get killed is an awful thing to have in the file drawer of random images in your brain i have now watched the Zapruder footage a dozen or so times and i'm not thrilled about it second of all there were at least five people taking amateur film footage of the motorcade that day and Zapruder was one of them His footage is the clearest and has the best angle of the president as he was struck with both bullets. It has been analyzed and picked over by all sides of this story as evidence of whatever theory is being peddled at that moment. I guess Dale, former computer department manager at Staples, is implying that Abraham Zabruder was also in on the conspiracy, which makes you wonder why he would have filmed his wife giving the signal to shoot the president. Like, maybe don't capture that moment on camera? Or maybe he's saying Zapruder wasn't in on it, but his wife was? Why his wife was all the way down the hill and across the road from him, who knows? Maybe his wife was like, I'll go get footage from that angle. That'll be swell. And he suspected nothing because why would he? This, of course, begs the question, if Zapruder turned over his footage to investigators, why didn't his wife? Wouldn't he have been like, honey, you got footage too, hand it over to the nice man. Also, there is no evidence of anyone wearing a big fur coat. You can see a reflection coming off the babushka lady in Zabruder's film, but who knows what it was? Her reading glasses on a chain around her neck? The camera some people claim she kept pointing at the president even after the second shot was fired? Indeed, from what I saw, it looks like she did stop filming and lowered her camera. The reflection could have easily been that. Also, the second shot comes three to four seconds after the reflection, which seems like poor planning. I don't know. But Dale, former computer department manager at Staples, says that the many films and photographs prove his theory. There are actually only four known films of the moments leading up to, involving, and immediately after the shots were fired. And as far as this layperson is concerned, none of them prove anything, except that JFK was shot twice. There is a fifth film that didn't manage to capture the actual moment of the assassination itself, but you know what it did capture? a bunch of other women wearing trench coats and headscarves. I counted four or five in one viewing. I'm sure if I went over the film frame by frame, I'd be able to count at least half a dozen more. Like I said earlier, headscarves were fairly ubiquitous at the time, which makes it even less remarkable that the babushka lady didn't come forward. I don't think any woman who wore a headscarf considered it a babushka, unless she was literally from the old country, So that makes the person wearing the headscarf and trench coat only interesting because she would have had footage that no one else had seen yet. But missing film on its own isn't suspicious enough for conspiracy theorists. So why not claim her wardrobe was really unusual and her stance was wide? That way you can say she was really a male spy dressed up as a lady. The thing is, in close-up shots of this person, it's pretty clear she's a she. Along with not having the technology to make gun cameras, I don't think the CIA or the KGB was capable of creating a Mission Impossible-style realistic face mask in 1963. Or today, so. I could make a joke about the 1997 classic Face-Off, but I've never actually seen it. I watched the trailer, though, and it looks... Monumentally stupid. But if it wasn't a Russian spy and or operative of the U.S. government, who in the world was this person and where did their footage go? Enter Beverly Oliver, a former nightclub singer turned evangelical Christian ventriloquist with a story to tell about clandestine visits from FBI agents, confiscated photos, and babushkas. In her book Nightmare in Dallas, Beverly Oliver claimed that she was, indeed, the babushka lady. The book was self-published in 1994, three years after Oliver Stone's movie JFK came out. Beverly explained that in a chance encounter in 1970 with J. Gary Shaw, one of the earliest people to publicly question the government's official explanation for JFK's assassination, Beverly was convinced to share the story she'd been keeping quiet for seven years. Shaw had co-written a book called Cover-Up, which laid out the case for the CIA's involvement in the assassination. He and other JFK researchers were well aware of the elusive Babushka lady and had long hoped to get his hands on the footage she took that day. Beverly explained that she had been a singer at the Colony, a local Dallas nightclub, in 1963. She was either 17 or 19, depending on which story she tells. The day of the assassination, she went down to Dealey Plaza with the rest of the onlookers with her camera to take film of the momentous day. She stood on the grass facing the book depository filming the motorcade. The following Monday, when she arrived at work at the colony, she was approached by two official looking men who told her they were FBI and asked her for any footage she had captured on November 22nd in Dealey Plaza. The men told her she would get her footage back in 10 days. She never did. J. Gary Shaw said he was flabbergasted when he realized that Beverly Oliver was the infamous babushka lady suspected by JFK researchers to have footage that would put an end to the debate once and for all as to whether there was more than one shooter that day. The fact that the FBI confiscated her film and never returned it, as far as Shaw was concerned, was further evidence that the government was hiding its involvement in the assassination. If Beverly's photos could show there were no other shooters, Shaw said, why wouldn't the government release the photos as evidence to prove its case? It's worth mentioning here that one of the conspiracy theories about JFK's assassination is that the fatal headshot came not from the sixth floor of the book depository, but from a member of Kennedy's own Secret Service detail. This theory says that Secret Service member George Hickey, riding in the car behind the president, stood up immediately after hearing the first shot, holding his AR-14, which either went off on its own because of a flaw in its design, or went off when the car lurched and Hickey accidentally pulled the trigger. In either version, the shot was accidental, but the government concocted the cover-up so that the public wouldn't lose faith in the Secret Service. I don't know. It doesn't really matter if the public has faith in the Secret Service or not, does it? Though I suppose admitting the president's own protector can't protect him is maybe a bad look. And not that it matters for the sake of this episode. And Lord knows I'm no ballistics expert. But from the bunch of times I had the misfortune to watch the Zapruder footage, it's pretty clear to me the headshot couldn't have come from directly behind the president. It hit him in the side of his head. Anyway, in the wise words of Saeed from Lost, that's not important right now. What is important, according to conspiracy theorists, is that Beverly Oliver's footage may have shown Hickey's gun going off, thus proving the cover-up. In my opinion, judging from her angle and how close she was to the road, it seems unlikely she would have gotten that wide of a shot. But what do I know about 1960s camera technology? Exactly nothing. Nothing. The camera Beverly Oliver may or may not have been using, though, it turns out, is an important piece of the puzzle. It's one reason some people doubt Beverly's story. The particular model of camera she claimed to have had didn't come out until 1965, two years after the assassination. But Beverly claimed she had a friend with, quote, access to advanced camera technology, whatever the hell that means, who gave her the camera. Why someone would hand a yet-to-be-released, top-of-the-line handheld movie camera to a teenager is beyond me. And also, claiming to have a friend who has access to advanced camera technology doesn't seem like the best way to get attention off of you. You know who has access to advanced technologies? Government spies. Then there's the question of why Beverly didn't come forward sooner. Even after her name was leaked to the press in 1972, she remained silent. And why didn't she ever demand to get her footage back? In an interview with the Assassination Records Review Board in 1994, Beverly said... I have never until recently started trying to inquire about my film because I am extremely patriotic, did not see that there was any reason to because I had assumed all these years that it was locked up until the year 2029 as evidence. And I am still not sure that there is anything sinister about it and that is why I'm here. I would just like an explanation as to what happened to my film and where it is. And that is the only reason that I am here. When asked if she had any proof that the FBI did indeed confiscate her film, Beverly replied, I was only 17 years old and I wasn't smart enough to ask for a receipt. This is a man representing my government. If he had asked me for my soul, I would have tried to give it to him. Also, there are ulterior motives. I would go ahead and tell you that before someone else does. Laying next to the camera in my makeup kit was a Prince Albert can of marijuana, and I would have done anything to keep him from looking in my makeup kit. But also, let me share this with you. I no longer use marijuana or anything else. I am a born-again Christian, and I am married to a preacher and have been for 23 years. What the marijuana has to do with any of this, I don't know. I guess she was trying to say she was nervous because she had marijuana, so she didn't think to get some kind of receipt. Also, not sure what her patriotism has to do with wanting to get her footage back. Like, you can be patriotic all day. That doesn't mean you have to be okay with not getting your shit back. The biggest problem with Beverly Oliver's story is that the woman in the footage is very clearly not 17 or 19 years old. We'll post some of the photos of Beverly from the time and also a photo of her posing with her ventriloquy dummy, which is not to be missed. And it's a stretch to match her with the woman in the photos and footage from that day. Even as grainy and shaky as the photos and film are, it's pretty obvious the babushka lady is not a blonde teenager. Beverly explained this away by saying she often wore wigs at the time and, like, sure... I get it, but a wig wouldn't make a svelte teenage girl look like the woman in the footage. Picture a woman from the old country in a plain dress, opaque stockings, and orthopedic shoes sitting on a folding chair in front of the local market by the fruit stand, possibly shucking corn, shooing the children away, and haggling over the price of a pound of apples. Like, possibly a tooth missing. You feel me? Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. But isn't that what storytellers do? Embellish? Stretch the truth? Fill in the blanks to make a more compelling story? Beverly's book, Nightmare in Dallas, also recounts a secret meeting she and her first husband, who had mob ties, had with Richard Nixon, and that she met Lee Harvey Oswald before the assassination through Jack Ruby, who owned the Carousel Nightclub right next to the Colony Club where Beverly worked. Jack Ruby, of course, was the man who murdered Lee Harvey Oswald during his perp walk. Who knows how much of that is true and how much Beverly embellished in order to sell a book. J. Gary Shaw argued that Beverly's footage needed to be released to the public and returned to Beverly. The reason Shaw said he wanted Beverly to get her footage back from the FBI was so that she could profit off of it the way Zapruder had supposedly profited off of his footage. And frankly, that's a strange motive. I mean, sure, we all deserve to profit from our own work, but... It seems to me a record of a presidential assassination should just sort of be public domain, you know? Whatever the truth is about the JFK assassination, the mystery around it lends itself to more books and movies that people can profit from. And even if Beverly really was the babushka lady and her film could prove one way or another what actually happened that day in Dallas people would still find a way to continue peddling their theories as long as people wanted to pay good money to hear them. If the babushka lady was someone other than Beverly, well, nothing is going to change the outcome of that fateful day in Dallas, Texas, and everything that has followed it. Maybe there's a certain comfort in not knowing what really happened, in having mysteries around people like the babushka lady. It gives us somewhere to place our morbid curiosity and some way to explain the unexplainable because all theories and ideas aside, what could ever adequately explain cold-blooded murder? What I'm left with is this. The person in the photos is not Beverly Oliver, but then who is it and what happened to them? Did they never know people were looking for them? Did it not occur to them that their footage might be useful in the investigation into JFK's assassination? Was she just some woman from the old country who didn't have a visa? Was that even a thing in 1963? Who thought coming forward with her footage would get her deported? Is there footage in an old shoebox in the top of someone's closet somewhere that holds definitive answers? Or is the footage one of the thousands of things the government still has regarding the assassination that might possibly get released to the public someday? Hopefully time will tell, but until it does, we'll continue to fill in the blanks and write our own versions of this woman's story. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan... It's one thing if a child says they saw an alien. It's another if dozens and dozens of children said they saw the same alien. Alien Invasion. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplained.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Ryan Garcia. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at pod And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. See you there.